I invite you to, as we continue our worship, to turn in your uh, Bible or your bulletin to Isaiah chapter 6. We're continuing our series in the book of Isaiah, and we come this morning to a uh, particularly well-known, often uh, taught, often preached passage. And uh, as you listen to it, may the Holy Spirit, who inspired these words, give us also uh, enlightenment uh, to see here more of ourselves and more of our God and more of his grace that he gives to us. I invite you to listen to the word of God from Isaiah chapter 6 through the first eight verses of the chapter. This is God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. In this passage, Isaiah has an encounter with God that completely changes his life. And he records that experience for us so that we too might encounter that same God and we too might have our lives reoriented for our good through an encounter with or through an ongoing reliance upon the holy God. Isaiah's vision happens in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah doesn't give a lot of historical markers so when he does, it's noteworthy and intentional. King Uzziah died somewhere around 740 B.C. after a 52-year reign. That's an incredibly long time. 50 years ago from today was 1968. Most of us were not alive then, and a lot has changed in our nation and in our world since 1968. In that time, we have had nine presidential administrations, but over that same period of time, Judah, in this day, had enjoyed the stability of one king's rule the whole time, King Uzziah. And kings don't normally rule that long unless they are ruling particularly well. And Uzziah was a gifted and successful ruler whose accomplishments uh, are recorded in 2 Kings 15 and in 2 Chronicles 26. 
the two biblical chronicles of that time period. Uzziah oversaw military victories, uh, the expansion of the kingdom, infrastructure redevelopment, and agricultural reforms. He was a Renaissance man before the Renaissance as a ruler. In fact, I did not realize until preparing this sermon that Isaiah was Uzziah's biographer. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles 26, verse 22. Isaiah literally wrote the book on King Uzziah. So the death of Uzziah would have been both personally devastating, but also politically ominous. We take peaceful transitions of political power for granted. When I was in high school, I had a classmate who had moved to the United States from then the, uh, the then newly independent country of Georgia, not the state in the southeast United States, but in, over in the Caucasus Mountains uh, of, uh, uh, I guess, on the border of Europe, Asia. Uh, um, it's not on the border of Africa, Europe and Asia. Uh, and in the former Soviet Union, transfers of power meant uh, that outgoing leaders and their family members could very well be purged, arrested, disappeared, and sometimes executed. He actually came from the upper crust of, uh, of Georgian society, and he, his family had had family, friends who disappeared. And so that year's presidential election, being new to the United States, he was extremely anxious and fearful that some of his new American friends or their families might suffer a similar fate if their party lost. The passing of Uzziah would have been a time of political and social tension, but also exacerbated by the fears of uncertain and threatening international developments. And we'll talk about those more very soon when we get to chapter 7. Now, I don't think I have to do too much to convince you that in 2020, our presidential election year, in the midst of a global pandemic facing uncertainty at home and abroad, we have lots of points of continuity and similarity with the uncertainty faced by Isaiah in his own day. But in the midst of all of that turmoil in his life, Isaiah is granted an incredible vision of God a vision that is, in some ways, even more destabilizing than all of the things going on in his life up to that point, but a vision that is also re-stabilizing for Isaiah. And Lord willing, God can use this vision also to perhaps destabilize, but then re-stabilize you and I. Given the architecture that Isaiah describes, this vision probably comes to him when he's in the temple. Uh, the temple was God's symbolic dwelling place among his people. But the word that's used for the temple here is also actually the same Hebrew word that's used for palace. And you know whether it's referring to the temple or the palace only because of the context. But by using that particular term, Isaiah is reminding us, and this vision is reminding us, that though Uzziah may be dead, his throne vacant, and his palace empty, nonetheless... The God of Israel is still in residence, sitting upon his throne in his own palace. There's this incredible contrast in the vision where Isaiah is there when the king has died, but then what does he say? I have seen the king. One king is dead, one king will never 
sky. The visual imagery implied is of immensity. The temple was probably the single largest building in the city of Jerusalem in the whole country. Yet the building scarcely can contain the presence of God, even in a vision. Even seated, the Lord is high above Isaiah, and all Isaiah sees is the merest train of his robes, we might call the hem of his royal robes, which by themselves fill the entire temple. This is actually a convenient space to gather in as we imagine this image. Because if we were Isaiah, think of this space as the temple, and then all of a sudden being crowded back to the walls with a vision of a being who the edge of their garment completely fills the space and who we cannot even see as his uh, being vanishes in the distance above us. Uh, God is impressing upon Isaiah his majesty in this vision. The Lord is then surrounded by seraphim, a name that is uh, unusual. This is the only place it occurs in the Bible. And the best guess is it means something like burning, which makes sense because that's exactly the experience Isaiah has with regard to these uh, creatures. Uh, he has a burning experience with them. Despite being the very attendants of God, even the seraphim shield their faces and their bodies from God's presence while they worship him. Their number is not given. It's probably numerous. They seem to be singing antiphonally in a call and response style. Uh, we sing a couple of songs in this for format. Uh, we have sister churches uh, who would use that call and response format more frequently. But uh, in this particular context, even as they are alternating in song, the volume of their song shakes the very foundations and thresholds of the temple, which normally would be the most secure parts of a building, right? That's where, you, if you actually have an earthquake, you go to the foundation or the threshold, the doorway for safety. And yet even those parts of the building are shaking. Uh, the room fills with smoke. This is not to create an edgy worship mood but it's to protect Isaiah, it's safety, it's a safety measure, uh, to protect Isaiah from a direct vision of God himself that the Bible consistently tells us would be fatal. Isaiah even seems to be uh, avoiding looking directly at God, where he sees the hem of the, the robe of the Lord, and he sees the attendants around him, but he does not describe anything of his uh, face or person beyond that. The song that the seraphim sing is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. In Hebrew grammar, there's no uh, comparatives or superlatives in the same way that we have them or use them in English. When we want to rank things, we can put more or most in front of a word, or we can slap an ER or an EST onto the end of a word. So we might argue uh, in the midst of the NBA finals that LeBron James isn't just a great basketball player. We might argue that he's greater than Michael Jordan, that he's the greatest basketball player ever. Or, closer to home, we might say that Erin Bancroft doesn't just make delicious cakes. She bakes the most delicious cakes. Now, none of that exists in Hebrew. Instead, for emphasis, you simply repeat the word. There's a, a, a almost, com it's, it's quite comical. There's a very comical example of this in Genesis 14. There's a great battle 
that is decided because many of the combatants fall into pits. How embarrassing is that if you're in the middle of a battle? Uh, and uh, not good for you. But different English translations are all over the place in explaining what type of pits these are. Why can the English translations not agree? Well, in Hebrew, it doesn't say what type of pits they are. It just says that they are pit pits. Uh, R.C. Sproul says about this passage, uh, the author is saying that there are pits, and then there are pits. Some pits are pittier than other pits. And these pits, the pit pits, were the pittiest pits of all. It is one thing to fall into a pit, but if you fall into a pit pit, you are in deep. Hebrew emphasizes with repetition, and that is why Jesus often says, truly, truly, I say to you, when he wants to say something especially important and wants our attention. In the entire Bible, there is a, a handful of times where something is repeated three times. If repetition is a superlative, a threefold repetition is a super superlative. This passage is the only time in all of the Bible that any characteristic of God is repeated three times. God is not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. If you're anything like me, though, when uh, confronted with that uh, statement, the words holy and holiness, when you stop and think about them, they kind of feel a little squishy. What exactly does that mean? Often holy is just like a generically religious word that we slap onto the front of things to make them sound spiritual or better. So when the Bible says that God is preeminently holy, what exactly does it mean? What exactly is it driving at? The Hebrew word for holy most likely is derived from the word and the idea to separate. To be holy is to be separate, distinct, unique, and set apart. In the Old Testament, there are holy people, places, and things that are set apart for special use and special purpose, and they are not to be used in any other way than for the purpose they are set apart for. One of my pastors uh, from our church in New Jersey illustrated this with his own family's fine china, uh, as some couples do. Uh, I did not uh, learn about this until I got married to a southern uh, lady, uh, but uh, some families will gift fine china dining plates as gifts when a couple is married. The china plates are special and set apart. They're not everyday plates. Uh, they are for special occasions. Uh, now, my pastor in New Jersey was still waiting for the day when his family's holy china plates would be used. They had had children born, and the china plates stayed in the cabinet. He had graduated from seminary, and the china plates were still in the cabinet. He'd been ordained to gospel ministry, he had then been called to be a senior pastor and still no china plates for the dinner. Uh, every time they stayed in the cabinet, he was beginning to despair of ever seeing the wedding china again because in the eyes of his wife, that china was so special and set apart, it was not for common use. It was the holy china too holy to even be glimpsed by human eyes, apparently. 
But when we move from holy people, places, and things to describe God as holy and preeminently holy, the contrast is the entire universe as we know it, and then God, who is in his own category, separate, distinct from everything else that exists. He is utterly unique. He is the creator, and everything else is created. Nothing else is the creator as he is. Everything else is a creature. Even humanity, which the Bible gives a special prominence in God's creation, even humanity, which is so uniquely creative, like our creator, we are still creaturely. One theologian says that humanity is receptively recreative, and God alone is constructively creative, genuinely original. Theologians will often describe this vast gulf between God, uh, God and the universe as the creator-creature distinction. Uh, the two cannot in any way be confused or intermingled. As the Bible explains to us who God is and who this world is, God is not just at the top rung of the ladder and the biggest and best thing in the universe. He's something else entirely, without whom nothing else would exist. Now, uh, you perhaps have had the experience of vertigo. Maybe you've had the sense of tumbling, uh, of falling, uh, perhaps in a dream or in real life. And if we really stop and consider how different God is, it should give us spiritual vertigo. And if you have a particular theologian or author or writer who can help you think about God to the point where it disorients you, that's probably actually good for us. I know that I've enjoyed well, enjoyed is the wrong word. I've appreciated theologians that have helped me have a big view of God because he is entirely different from us. Theologians speak of this part of God's holiness as uh, metaphysical holiness. That's just a fancy word that God is entirely different from us. But there's another component to God's holiness as well. It's not just difference. The gap between us isn't only that, it is also one of moral antagonism. Some theologians want to put all of the emphasis on one or the other of these points. Isaiah's vision actually demonstrates both together. Uh, you can see this with the seraphim. They have no sin, no guilt or evil, and they even must shield their faces from the transcendent radiance of God's majestic presence. They are still creatures who, even though faultless, cannot fully endure the overwhelming presence of the glorious creator. But confronted by a vision of God, Isaiah does not say, Woe is me! I am finite. I am bound by time and my human limitations. That is not what he says. He says, Woe, me. Woe is me! I am unclean. I am morally filthy, and I live among a morally filthy people. Woe is me. That, um, that might sound a little quaint or archaic to many of us, but that's actually the furthest thing or uh, sense from what Isaiah is saying. 
the Hebrew word for woe is a word of both lament and judgment. And you might remember from recent passages in Isaiah, it's a word of judgment spoken against those who are in hostility to God. And in this passage, Isaiah is taking that word of judgment, woe, that he has spoken to others who are in hostility to God, and he's spinning it around, and he's applying it to himself. Woe is me. Isaiah is pronouncing his own self-condemnation confronted with God's presence. He is, recognizes himself as deservedly damned in the light of not only how sovereign, but how good God is and how rebellious and ungood he is in comparison to God, however he may be compared to his fellow Israelites. Isaiah says he is lost. Other translations say ruined or undone. He is undone. In God's presence, he is coming apart. He is unraveling. He is disintegrating because he lacks the integrity to stand in God's presence, even Isaiah, God's prophet. That's uh, quite remarkable given uh, the scathing rebukes that he's given to his countrymen. But when Isaiah is confronted with God's majesty, he doesn't pompously say, finally, somebody who understands me. Can you believe these people? Do you see what I have to work with here? Furthest thing from it. The holiness of God leaves even Isaiah without defense or excuse. He acknowledges his own moral culpability and how he's entangled and enmeshed with others in our moral, absolute moral inadequacy. We're going to delve into this more in more depth next week, but recognizing God's holiness should make us more humble, not in any way more smug. And if our religion just sets us up to look down on other people, that religion cannot yet possibly have truly encountered the fierce holiness of God. There's something strange about Isaiah's confession, though. He declares himself a man of unclean lips and his fellow citizens of, as people of unclean lips. What, what is that even talking about? Maybe Isaiah is thinking about his lips because he's a prophet. He's a professional public speaker. And maybe he's most conscious of his sinful words, his unsatisfactory words. Maybe he's thinking of his lips the way Isaiah, uh, sorry, James, the brother of Jesus, thinks of the tongue. When James writes in his letter to the churches that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord, our Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the image of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Or perhaps Isaiah is thinking along the same lines as Jesus himself in the uh, gospel that Mark wrote. In chapter 7, Jesus says, there's nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. It's the things that come out of a person that are what defile him. For from within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, pride, slander, uh, foolishness, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. 
perhaps Isaiah is thinking of the lips as the, the gateway of, that uh, reveals what comes out of the heart. Isaiah might actually even be thinking of Uzziah. Uzziah was successful at a young age, and as often happens with those who are successful early in life, his success made him proud. He attempted to participate in temple worship in a role that was reserved for priests alone. He wanted to offer incense on the altar in the most holy place. The priests blocked his entrance and warned him that he was violating God's law. But instead of repenting and admitting that he was wrong, he grew angry with them. Who are you priests to get in the way of me, the king? And I'm not just any king, I'm, an, I'm a fantastic king. But instead of repenting, uh, he was angry with them and Uzziah refused to listen to them and was struck with leprosy, a debilitating disease that afflicted him for the rest of his life. It's actually quite striking that it wasn't the original presumption, the original fault uh, that brings this punishment on him. It's that when he's confronted by the fault, when he's confronted by the great mistake he's about to make, that he refuses the correction and then the judgment comes. As a result of his leprosy, Uzziah had to share uh, rule and his son ruled in his place in the, the daily exercise of government for 10 years. And in the ancient world, leprosy was considered infectious and defiling. As a result of what we could call his leprosy-positive diagnosis, even Uzziah the king had to live in self-isolation uh, and uh, follow the stipulations of Leviticus 13. And if he left his house, he would have had to cover his upper lip, or uh, as a result also his uh, mouth, and announce, unclean, unclean, so that others could socially distance from him. Even the king himself. Like Uzziah, all the way down to, uh, through all of the Israelites, like Uzziah and Isaiah at the top of society, all the way down, we are people of unclean lips. We are infectious super spreaders of moral uncleanness so that when we are in our right mind, we should admit that we are condemned in God's holy presence. But that's when Isaiah's vision takes an unexpectedly hopeful change of direction. God is holy, but the other feature of his holiness is that his holiness also leaves him utterly free to deal with guilt as he sees fit. And that's exactly what happens for Isaiah. Isaiah does nothing. He does nothing but see his absolute need. And then God sends an attendant to apply a cleansing remedy. If this was not simply a vision, the action would have been agonizingly painful. The lips are one of the most sensitive parts of the human body. And you can only imagine if you've touched a coal in a, a fire, more likely for many of us, if you've accidentally touched a hot pan on a stovetop, that hurts. Now imagine putting that on your lips. Don't do that, please. Uh, even the angel is using oven tongs. But Isaiah makes no complaint. It's a vision. And maybe it's just because it's a vision. Or maybe if he does feel the pain in the vision, it is as nothing with having the relief from the sense of the guilt in the presence of a holy God. 
just as a quick side note, I uh, emphasize this is a vision. Isaiah does not do this to himself. Uh, it is, um, uh, for some among, among us, it is possible that we try to make ourselves better by punishing ourselves, uh, even perhaps hurting ourselves to relieve a sense of guilt. But when we do that to ourselves, it provides no lasting relief. Because when it's our own initiative, it's self-salvation. It's not received salvation. And like every type of self-salvation that we try, whether painful or pleasurable, it will become less and less effective over time and more and more self-destructive over time. But that is not what happens here. Isaiah receives cleansing as a gift even before he sought it. God's holy love and holy mercy come first his holy, unique, divine initiative cleanses us, not us doing it for ourselves. Uh, God is uh, undomesticated in his holiness, and that holiness captivates Isaiah's vision. It transforms him. He's not only humble, but as we'll talk about more in the um, coming weeks, and we'll say only briefly here, he becomes helpful and hopeful. Though a prophet... Uh, honestly identifying and confronting evil, he is nonetheless humble in ranking himself with his fellow men and women. He's helpful responding to God's mercy with an eagerness to do whatever God would call him to do. And we'll see it's not a particularly glorious task that God calls him to do. But he's also hopeful. God's holiness destabilizes Isaiah's already destabilized world. But God's godness was better than he had hoped. And Isaiah realized that he was worse than he imagined, but God's grace was more unfathomable than he had yet plumbed. And that reality stabilized him, even for the turmoil he would face and his nation would face in the future. He was stabilized by the vision of the Holy One of Israel. And uh, though his generation refused to receive his invitation, to know God, to celebrate his holiness, and to be a holy people as God had called them to be, he keeps on declaring God's glorious holiness. He writes it down so that future generations like we ourselves might uh, benefit from his experience because he is hopeful that we might receive the same cleansing that he himself did. One commentator points out that the coal that's taken from the altar would have been most likely the charred remains of an animal sacrifice, a burnt chunk that had once been the flesh of an animal, most likely a lamb, offered as a sacrifice in the place of some worshiper who had been there most recently. In the Gospels, Jesus is declared, ironically, by his spiritual enemies, by evil demonic spirits, he is recognized and declared as the Holy One of God, the only Holy One who nonetheless agreed with the Father to bear the brunt of divine anger against our uncleanness, our moral filth, and unholiness so that the unholy might be made holy, so that like Isaiah, we might be made humble and helpful and hopeful, not yet absolutely good, not by any stretch of the imagination, but set apart 
for his glorious purposes, set apart so that we, like the seraphim, might declare to one another and to our neighbors and world that he is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his glory. And we can do that with confidence, unafraid of what the future might hold for ourselves or our world, because the Holy One of Israel is always on his throne. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is always seated in heaven and present working upon the earth, exposing uncleanness and cleansing it with the holiness of Jesus so that we might make him known to our world, to our generation, uh, until the time when heaven comes to earth and all is holy as God desires it to be. Let's pray for the Spirit to work in us for this task.